Well, we're kind of uh, changing gears a little bit uh, this morning. We spent 10 weeks uh, prior to Easter on a journey through the 66 chapters of Isaiah, so we were knocking out six or seven chapters a week there on average. Uh, We're going to hit the brakes a little bit now, and we're going to slow down, and we're going to spend seven weeks in the four chapters of Colossians, so it's going to feel a little bit different, and and not just the speed of it, but we are also transitioning from an Old Testament poetic book to a a New Testament letter from Paul. So it's just going to be kind of a stark difference from what we had the last 10 weeks, but but here we are. And so uh, to get us uh, started this morning, uh, we we do want to do what we normally do and kind of have a little bit of background on Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And so, uh, so we'll, we'll re- just read through the first two verses of uh, his letter together and then kind of look at some details to, to set the foundation as we go forward. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So, you know, right off the bat, we see this is another, as I said, another of Paul's letters. One of Paul's letters to the, one of the early churches in the Roman Empire. Um, now, I learned something new in my study uh, this past week that I had not realized before. I'd always assumed that, similar to the churches in Corinth or Ephesus, that Paul planted this church on one of his missionary journeys. It's not the case, however. That was something new that I had learned. We're we're given no indication anywhere in this letter or in the book of Acts that kind of details Paul's journeys that he he ever went to um, Colossae and planted a church there. We're not given that indication. And if you look, if, you, if you've got a uh, Bible that has maps in the back of it, if you look at the map that chronicles Paul's journeys, you'll see that the, the path doesn't go through Colossae. He never stopped there. Rather, as we'll explore more deeply in just a bit, it seems that an individual named Epaphras planted this church. And presumably Epaphras visited Paul when Paul was in Ephesus Epaphras became a Christian while he was there and then took the, co- took the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae. And then at some point, possibly when Paul was in prison, Epaphras went to visit Paul and kind of brought a message about the church that was at Colossae. So all that being said, this letter is being written to a church who probably knew who Paul was, but didn't have that personal relationship with Paul, like, like some of the other early churches would have had that Paul planted or that he visited. And so what this tells me, one of the things it tells me is that Paul wasn't a, a tunnel vision kind of apostle. He, he wasn't someone who was only concerned about his churches, okay? Even though he had never met the people in this town and in this church, Paul still cared enough for them to write to them, to pray for them, as, as we're soon going to see. And, and so then regarding the purpose of Paul's letter, there, there was an issue within the church at Colossae that, that needed to be addressed. 
So apparently the message which Epaphras gave to Paul was one that concerned Paul just a bit. And, and we're not told directly in, in the letter, but, but many scholars would assume that the church in Colossae was, was beginning to accept a false teaching called Gnosticism. And if you're in the adult Sunday school class, that rings a bell, right? Because we just talked about Gnosticism a few weeks back. If you're not, I'll give a little bit of, a, of a, uh, an update here uh, on what Gnosticism is. It's a broad group of teachings that usually have a few things in common. So uh, one thing that you always find in Gnosticism is a type of dualism. A dualism that says that everything spiritual is good and everything physical or material is bad, is evil. Spiritual good, physical evil. That, that is a hallmark of Gnostic thinking. So what that means is that Gnostics had a major, major problem with the teaching that the Son of God was both divine, they had no problem with that, but also human. That presented a major problem in Gnostic thinking. A perfect God would, you never, would never unite himself with the evil physical world, according to that line of thinking. So that's one of the hallmarks of Gnosticism. Second, because physical matter was evil, the, the supreme God, as, as they thought of him, could not be personally involved in the creation of the physical world. Couldn't happen because that's evil and the spiritual supreme God is all good. So that God could not be involved in creation. So as a result, it was believed that the supreme God created a type of lesser God just below him. And that lesser God uh, created another lesser God just a step below him, and the process continues all the way on down until you get to a God that's so distant from the supreme God that it could create the physical world. That, that was part of Gnostic thinking. And in fact, this very low creator God was actually seen as evil because of its contact with the evil physical world. And so you can kind of see how there's this complicated hierarchy of, of gods that, that they held to. And then beyond that, as a result of that hierarchical system, it, it, it became the the goal of man to traverse that system, to get up to the supreme God at the top. And the way you do that is through more knowledge, through more wisdom. So as far as Gnostics were concerned, Christians had a knowledge of this lowly creator God, but by gaining new special knowledge, they could move to the next higher God. And if you got some more special knowledge, you could move up again and again. And, and the more privileged a person was, the more knowledge they could attain, and it would allow them to work their way up to that, knowing that supreme God up at the top. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. And you can see why it would have worried Paul, because that's very far away from the reality of who God is. And so Paul wrote a letter to this church in Colossae uh, to, to give a rebuttal against this Gnostic teaching that was, was infiltrating the church. And you can see why this letter then so eloquently presents the preeminence and the authority of Jesus Christ, who Gnostics thought was down here, but Paul says, no, no, Jesus Christ is the supreme God. And so we'll, we'll really get into that more next week, but you'll see that theme coming out in uh, Colossians. So now that we've got that background, 
Let's dive into Paul's opening remarks in the letter. He begins by giving thanks for the church in Colossae. And remember, Paul's never visited this church, so there's a real sense in which these words are also helping to establish a relationship with this body of believers so that later on in the letter he can really speak into their lives. He's got to set that foundation first. You can kind of hear it as we go through. So follow with me. Colossians chapter 1 verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed the whole, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, so in this first paragraph, Paul shares with the church the ways in which he gives thanks to God for them. And, and as Paul gives thanks for them, he's ultimately giving thanks for the work of God in salvation, as seen in their lives, what God's been doing in and through them in, in salvation. And so this paragraph, along with the next one that we'll look at this morning, it's uh, two classic examples of the way in which Paul writes a really, really, really long sentence. So both of these paragraphs in the Greek are one sentence each. I think uh, in English, we're, it's maybe three sentences for us, but it's one. It's one sentence that Paul writes. And so because of that, it can kind of be tough to track with what Paul's saying, because by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you forget what was at the beginning of the sentence, because it's been so long. So, so one of the things that, that I've found helpful is kind of breaking things up and making a bullet point list, which you'll, which, uh, you'll see in your notes in the bulletin and on the screen as well. So uh, we're going to work down through this list and kind of take note of what Paul's saying. And uh, just, you know, in case that wasn't confusing enough, Paul basically moves backwards chronologically in his statement. He shares that he gives thanks in prayer because of something, uh, because of a certain outcome that was based on a prior outcome that was based on a prior outcome that was based on a prior cause. He's, he's moving backwards. So it's, we're as, about as confused as can be when we just read through that paragraph. So you can see why a list is, is going to be helpful at this point. So we're going to work down through the list, kind of keep note that we're moving backwards chronologically. First thing, Paul states, the foundation of all of this, the first cause, if you will, Paul states that God's grace has been poured out. God's grace has been poured out upon the church body at Colossae. And, and as we would expect Paul to say, God's work of salvation in his people, it's first and foremost a work of God's grace being poured out upon them. And you can hear his, his letter to the church in Ephesus, by grace you have been saved. It all starts with God's grace. When, when Paul speaks of the grace of God in truth being understood by the church, you can kind of hear him speaking directly against that Gnostic way of thinking. In Gnosticism, salvation was attained through secret privileged knowledge, which allowed a person to kind of go up through the ranks of those gods. In reality, Paul says, no, salvation is received as a gift of grace from God. And so Paul gives thanks. 
because God has poured out his grace. So if we continue through Paul's train of thought, God has poured out his grace upon the church by way of Epaphras. As I mentioned earlier, it's not Paul who founded the church, who planted this church, it was Epaphras. And you kind of think about that, maybe there wasn't the, uh, the prestige and the notoriety that would have come with being a church planted by the Apostle Paul. But a church of Jesus is a church of Jesus nonetheless. It doesn't matter whether it was planted by Paul or not. And if you remember back in, uh, in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, they were arguing among themselves about if they were followers of Paul or Apollos or Peter. And, you know, they were seeking to find prestige uh, and influence by hitching themselves to one of the famous apostles. The church in Colossae can't really do that because Paul didn't plant their church. They were planted by Epaphras, who's relatively unknown. This is kind of all that we know about him. Um, but it didn't matter, because God's grace is not limited to being poured out through the educated or the famous or the smooth talkers or anything like that. God will pour out his grace through whomever he chooses. In this case here, it was through Epaphras to the people in Colossae. And you know, we kind of can think about ourselves. We can't assume that God cannot work through us. We, we cannot disqualify ourselves from being a conduit of God's grace. You might be the very person through whom God has chosen to pour out his grace upon someone else. You know, we maybe don't think of ourselves like the Apostle Paul, but maybe we can think about ourselves like an Epaphras, somebody who heard the gospel and brought it to someone else, and God's grace is just flowing through us because of that. He, God can do that, and I'm confident he will do that if we allow him to, if we allow him to pour out his grace through us into other people's lives. So Paul's train of thought, God poured out his grace upon the church by way of Epaphras through the gospel message. The gospel is the word of truth. As Paul says here, it's the message that God loves us so much that he came to earth as a human. He went on to sacrifice himself on the cross in our place. And then both his death and his resurrection after that brings the ultimate defeat upon sin. That, that, that's the true message of the gospel. And, and during Paul's time, as well as our own time, there's so many other messages that present themselves as truth, aren't there? So many messages that present themselves as truth. Uh, these messages clamor for our attention and our allegiance, but at the end of the day, it's only the gospel. It's only the word of truth that's firm enough to build our lives upon. It's only that one. So we ought to be asking ourselves regularly, what messages am I believing that is, that is not truth? It's not truth, and, 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 and I'm convinced that the more we distract ourselves, the more we disengage our minds especially, the more likely we are to accept false messages and, and consider them truth. But everything has to be compared with the words of Scripture, with the truth of the gospel message. Every, every message we hear claiming to be truth needs to be presented before God so that his light can, can shine upon it and reveal it for what it truly is. 
Paul says the true message is the gospel message. So we see that God poured out his grace upon the church by way of Epaphras through the message of the gospel, which reveals a confident hope laid up in heaven. Confident hope laid up in heaven. Because the church accepted the truth of the gospel, they had a confident hope in God's promises. Now the ultimate fulfillment of those promises, uh, though not yet fully revealed on earth, already exist in heaven. They already exist in heaven. The kingdom of God was real and secure, and it, it was breaking into this current world. And so their redemption, of, uh, their redemption from sin was, was real, and it was secure. And, and upon their departure from this life, they, they would experience the fullness of that in heaven. That was the hope laid up for them in heaven. You could see already the results of, of salvation and of redemption, but, but in heaven we get the fullness, the fullness of that, the, the hope that we have in a reality free from evil and suffering is a confident hope, is a confident hope. And it's only confident because of the truth of the gospel message. It talks about who Christ is and what he has done. So Paul, uh, or excuse me, God pours out his grace upon the church by way of Epaphras through the gospel message, which reveals a confident hope laid up in heaven, leading to faith in Christ Jesus. The message of the gospel, the hope that it contains, is meant to lead directly to faith in Jesus. I mean, that, that's why proclaiming the gospel message and the hope of the gospel is, is such an important thing. It's why before Jesus departed from this world, he commanded, he commissioned his disciples to take that message to the ends of the earth. It leads to faith in Jesus. And so, praise God for people like Paul who took that message to places like Ephesus. Praise God for Epaphras who presumably heard that message in Ephesus and then took it back to his hometown of Colossae. And, and we ought to praise God for each and every link in, between the chain, in the chain between Jesus and you and me. You ever thought about that? There's a chain there of gospel proclamation that goes all the way back to Jesus. Isn't that going to be fun someday in heaven to put that chain together? It's going to be, I'm looking forward to just my family tree kind of tracing it back. But that gospel chain, we're going to be able, I think, in heaven to understand that, you know, somebody shared the gospel with me, somebody shared it with them, and it goes all the way back to Christ, to the, the enactor of the gospel. Boy, that's something to look forward to in heaven someday. But that chain is not meant to stop with you and me. That chain is meant to go on beyond us as well. And so if we desire to see people come to faith in Jesus, then we ought to pray that God's grace would be poured out upon them as we share the gospel message and the hope that that message contains. That's what leads to faith in Christ. So God poured out his grace upon the church by way of Epaphras through the gospel message, which reveals a confident hope laid up in heaven, leading to faith in Christ Jesus and a love for all the saints. Because of our hope laid up in heaven, we will find that we possess a love for one another. Um, 
it's probably safe to say there's a bit of a lack of love in our world today. Seems to be pretty evident. Um, our country especially is one in which people draw up sides and view everyone else not on their side as their enemy. Um, and, and when a person's hope lies solely in this earth, in this world, it's not hard to see why battle lines are drawn the way they are. <clears throat> but when our hope is firmly grounded in heaven and the coming restoration of all goodness, I think it becomes so much easier to keep our differences in context and, and love one another. The more we focus on eternity, the more we will love each other. The more we focus on eternity, I think the more we'll love fellow believers in other local churches. The more we'll love any of God's children from any part of this world. The differences regarding minor doctrines and, and non-essential beliefs, they're put into their proper place in light of eternity. So to sum all of that up, that long sentence of Paul, God poured out his grace upon the church by way of Epaphras through the gospel message, which reveals a confident hope laid up in heaven, leading to faith in Christ Jesus and a love for all the saints. And because of that, Paul always thanked God. He thanked God for what God was doing in the church, in their lives, in their salvation. There's a, there's a lot of nuggets of truth in just that one sentence, but the overarching point is that Paul thanked God for his work of salvation in the lives of the believers at Colossae. And uh, the sermon's not over yet, so don't get excited. We've got another paragraph to discuss, but I do want to just pray right here. I'd, I'd like to pause and similarly give thanks to God for his work of salvation in this body of believers. So let me do that right now. God, we do thank you. We know that your work of salvation is first and foremost your work. It is your work of grace that sets the whole thing in motion. And so we praise you for that. God, we thank you that your grace is poured out upon us. We thank you that we're in a, in a chain of gospel proclamation that people have been proclaiming the gospel for generations and centuries, and, and we're blessed recipients of that. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that is proclaimed, the hope in heaven that we have. God, we thank you that, we're, that, that we can have faith in you and in what you are doing, how you are working. We thank you for the love that you stir up within us for one another. Your, your work in salvation is, is extraordinary, and we're so appreciative of it. It's why we're here. It's why we worship you. It's why, why we give you praise and honor. God, help us to, to never forget what you've done in the past in our life through salvation and what you're continuing to do as you work out salvation within us. We give you praise this morning, just like Paul gave thanks for your work in the church at Colossae. We give thanks for your work in the church here, Eureka Bible. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. So again, what, what God does in a believer's life through his work of salvation, it, it's grand, and, and that is a glorious work. But it isn't the only work 
that God seeks to do in his people. There's an, an additional sanctifying work which God also does. And, and it's this ongoing work that Paul prayed for in verse 9. So would you follow along with me? Let's read this next long sentence from Paul. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So once again, we're going to kind of make a list out of this long sentence from Paul. This time he moves forward chronologically, so at least we've got that working for us as we go through this one. But the first thing we see is that Paul prays for a filling of the knowledge of God's will. Filling of the knowledge of God's will. Now, now can we just recognize this morning that that is a loaded statement right there. We need to feel the gravity of that statement, being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Whenever we venture into the area of, of God's will, or his plan, or his, his purposes, however it might be phrased, that's the deep end of the pool. I mean, we're going into the deep end of the pool there. And, and as we enter the deep end of the pool, we have to be careful in assuming that we're ever able to fully and completely grasp God's will or purposes. I, I, uh, I came across a statement by uh, Maxie Dunham that I thought frames this discussion so well. And, and because it's a longer statement, we're going to have it up on the screen, and I'm going to read it. Uh, but this will kind of allow you to follow with, uh, with your eyes and your ears at the same time. Okay, so, but here, here's what he says. He says, God's will is. He has a plan for the universe and for our lives. Discerning God's will is our task, and that is not easy. It is a surrender of our identity as human beings and a blasphemy against God to give in to the pain, hopelessness, and helplessness we feel, the gnawing doubts that haunt us by passing through our struggles, conflict, pain, disillusionment, and despair with the superficial affirmation, it's God's will. Such glossing over is a straw bridge which will not hold as we pass over or through the debilitating depths to which we are often plunged. Such shallow, facile words are empty and do not affirm the almightiness of God as we presume they do. Nor does such an easy slogan authenticate our faith. The will of God is often enshrouded in darkness, clouded in ambiguity. Silence as well as speaking marks his communication with us. In prayer, we struggle to discern God's will. We talk, we listen, we ponder scripture, we reflect, we wait, and graciously, the response comes. Not according to our timetable, nor in the form and mode of our design, 
but in God's timing and in his way. You see why I say we're in the deep end here. We're in the deep end. We ought to pray, as Paul did, for a filling of the knowledge of God's will. But we must also understand that we are not vessels capable of containing the totality of the knowledge of God's will. We are filled long before he is emptied, if we can phrase it that way. So why even pray? And why, why pray to be filled with any of the knowledge of God's will if, if we can't grasp it fully? Why, why even spend time in prayer seeking that filling? Paul goes on to show in the rest of that sentence, uh, there are some incredible outcomes of that filling. However much of it God gives to us, there's some incredible outcomes, even though we can't fully grasp God's will. Look what Paul goes on to say. He prays for a filling of the knowledge of God's will, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and bear fruit in good works. In, in three of Paul's other letters, he, he also exhorts the churches to walk in a manner worthy of God. Uh, the beliefs of a Christian are always meant to impact their actions. James says, faith without works is dead. A, a filling of the knowledge of God's will guides us into that worthy walking, if, if we can call it that, worthy walking. The greater our wisdom and how God is working, I think the more likely we are in our lives to walk in a manner, to bear fruit in line with what God is doing. So Paul prays for that. He prays for a filling of the knowledge of God's will that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and bear fruit in good works and increase in the knowledge of God. As our knowledge of God's will increases, our knowledge of him increases too. And we're not talking about a, a, an academic knowledge about God. We're, we're referencing an, an intimate relational knowledge of God. And, and there is a difference there. Paul's talking about a knowledge of God. As, as God reveals his ways to us and as we walk in those ways, our relationship with him will grow and it will deepen. So that's why Paul prays for that here. So he goes on, he prays for a filling of the knowledge of God's will that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and bear fruit in good works and increase in the knowledge of God and be strengthened in endurance and patience. And I think, I think this pertains especially to when God's will is not the immediate removal of pain and suffering. As we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, we may discover that he will sustain us through the suffering rather than remove the suffering. And so it's in those moments that, that we need endurance and we need patience to continue clinging to God. It's this step-by-step -step trusting, even when what we really desire is for every bit of pain and suffering to be taken away. Through a, through a greater knowledge of God's will, he will supply that endurance. He'll supply that patience that we need when the suffering isn't removed right when we want it to be or how we want it to be. 
So Paul prays for a filling of the knowledge of God's will, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bear fruit and good works, and increase in the knowledge of God, and be strengthened in endurance and patience, and be joyful. And again, as we gain wisdom, as we gain understanding regarding what God is doing, I think we come to find joy. We come to find joy in that. And, uh, you know, James famously says, uh, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That's got to be one of our favorite verses in Scripture, right? Consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That can be misapplied in such a way that, that we are told to find joy in the trials, right? In the, the, the suffering, the trials themselves. James never says such a thing. He just says, consider it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. What he goes on to say is that the joy comes from knowing what the final outcome will be. The joy is not, ground, is not in the difficult trial. The joy is in the end result through the trial. And in fact, some Bible scholars debate whether this phrase here, with joy, should be connected to the endurance and the patience of verse 11 or the giving thanks of verses 12, 13, and 14. And it's ambiguous in the original Greek, so we just don't know for sure. I would tend to lean toward the latter. There's, there's nothing joyful about pain and suffering itself. That's why it's going to be done away with at the end. But Paul knows there is joy when the knowledge of God's will shines a light on the promised end. And so if we go back through this, Paul prays for a filling of the knowledge of God's will, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and bear fruit in good works, and increase in the knowledge of God, and be strengthened in endurance and patience, and be joyful, and give thanks for their inheritance, deliverance, redemption, and forgiveness. That's the end. I mean, that is the final outcome of all of it. God's ultimate will is to give you an inheritance. It's to deliver you from the dominion of darkness. It's to redeem you. It's to forgive you of sins. That's where the joy comes in there, knowing that God's will is to lead to that final ultimate outcome. So to, to wrap it up this morning, have you ever struggled with knowing how to pray for someone? And my hand's not up to put, get you to put your hand up. My hand's up because I've struggled with knowing how to pray for someone. Especially at times another believer in, uh, in Jesus. Or, or if you've ever struggled to know how to pray for yourself. Paul's words in these two paragraphs, I think, give a wonderful framework for how we can pray. Rather than kind of defaulting to the common things like health and safety and, and just generic blessing, Paul is laser-focused. He's long-winded in a way, but he's laser-focused on praising God for his work in salvation and requesting an even greater work of sanctification. I mean, that, that's what he's honing in on here in these two paragraphs as he prays for the believers at Colossae. So along those lines, I, I, w I would challenge you to, to hang on to your bulletin this week with, uh, with these outlines in it 
and allow these passages to, to guide your praying. Uh, use some of the phrases from Paul and, and pray with the same intention that he did in these two long sentences. And, and I have faith that, that you'll find wonderful blessing in your times of prayer as a result, as we use some of these words that, that Paul's using here in his prayers. So this time the sermon is ending. So let's pray, and I'm going to pray one more time, kind of based off of this second paragraph that we looked at. God, we come to you again, and uh, we do pray for a filling of the knowledge of your will. We freely, freely admit that we cannot contain the fullness of it. We know that. But we pray that you would fill us with whatever you see fit to fill us. Whatever portions of your will you want to make known to us, God, we ask that you would. And as you do that, we, we pray that that would, that would work for our sanctification, God, that it would impact how we walk, that it would be in a manner worthy of you, that it would impact our relationship with you and our knowledge of you, that it would impact the endurance and the patience that we have, God, that knowing your will would, would hold us as, as you don't always work in the way that we want you to work. God, we pray that you would fill us with joy knowing what the final outcome is, that your will is to redeem us and forgive us and deliver us God, we're so, we're so appreciative of that. We're humble before you because of that. Your will that we cannot fully grasp, we know is fully good. And so help us to trust in that. And God, in all of this, as we look at this entire passage, we thank you for your work. Help us to not become prideful based upon what you're doing in our lives, but may we be humble, recognizing that it is your work. And we ask you to continue to do it, to do it, and we ask you to continue to do it even more. And so, God, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.